coming up on the Branding Deep Dive podcast. In all of his years, his decades of you know mentoring startup founders, the most important quality in a successful founder is to be relentlessly resourceful. Mm-hmm. So that means you know get what you want with what you've got. You know, so you you really want a great team and great talent. You don't have money. Well, you you just got to be resourceful and relentless and and try and. Sometimes people are going to say no. Sometimes people will say yes. This is Ahmed Shima and welcome to the Branding Deep Dive podcast. If you're new here, this is a podcast where we have in-depth discussions about what brands are doing well to drive customer loyalty and how you can take those principles and apply them to your own brand. Today, we're talking to Chris Blavelt. Chris is the CEO of LaunchGood, which is a crowdfunding company based out of Detroit, Michigan. For those that don't know, crowdfunding is a way for people to fund their ideas through the power of an online crowd, also known as backers. Being an entrepreneur, Chris saw the power of crowdfunding to help entrepreneurs like himself, so he created LaunchGood, a global Muslim platform built to leverage the power of crowdfunding to support great ideas. In this episode, we dive deep into how LaunchGood broke into an already saturated space of crowdfunding, why a company might pivot from their original vision, how to attract talented people on a shoestring budget, and much, much more. If you're a founder or have ever thought of founding a startup, pause this right now and go grab a notebook. You're going to want to take notes. Now, here's Chris Blavelt. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. It is an honor having you on. Uh, for the audience that may not be familiar with who you are and the work you do, uh, can you give a brief introduction to uh, yourself and launch good? Sure. Hey, salam alaikum, everyone. My name is Chris Abdurrahman Blavelt. Uh, as the name probably indicates, um, I'm a convert. You know, I wasn't born into a Muslim family. Uh, I did become Muslim when I was in high school. Uh, I lived in Massachusetts at the time. And I came to Michigan, where I am now, uh, for college. I studied engineering here, mechanical engineering. A lot of people do that to get into like Ford and General Motors, et cetera. Um, but I, I, didn't, I don't really care that much about cars. Um, I probably should have known that before I came to Michigan. And uh, so I started, you know, exploring different careers throughout my 20s, uh, some advice I got. So I d- did work as an engineer at Intel for a short time in California. I worked as a teacher. I worked as um, uh, educational nonprofit. Uh, co-founder. I worked as a film producer. I like it's really crazy uh, jobs, but eventually I landed on starting my own tech company, um, LaunchGood. And so that's why you're probably listening to this today. If you know me, why you know me is I'm the founder and CEO of LaunchGood.com, which is a crowdfunding platform for the global Muslim community. So you can think of it like a Muslim GoFundMe or a Muslim Just Giving. And that, and uh, I guess I should mention I have. I'm married, alhamdulillah, I have three kids, um, and I live in Canton, Michigan, a very, very suburban lifestyle now. <laughs> Canton is one of the greatest places on earth, so welcome to the <laughs> Canton community. Alhamdulillah. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, I want to take it a little bit chronological, and then we'll, I'm sure we'll go all over the place, but, um, you know, starting, I, I, I talked to Abdul Manan a lot about this, right? When Abdul Manan was in college working for LaunchGood and LaunchGood was just getting started in those days, it, a lot of people um, had this perception about LaunchGood that like, oh, like, why are you wasting your time? Especially for Abdul Manan, I'm sure he heard it a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, like, what was the toughest part for you building 
this startup and, and now you guys have raised what like 200 250 million dollars yeah. yeah so like what what is what was the toughest part in that journey from the beginning to where you guys uh to, to now actually like in that journey you know i i'm a really stubborn guy so i think that that has its pros and cons um but definitely with entrepreneurship you need to be a bit stubborn right like you have a vision you have you have this belief in what you're building that not everyone will share or not everyone will see um and uh nothing proves success like success right so like once you make it and, and I, I don't think we've made it yet we're still getting there but you know hamza over a quarter billion raised for charity now it's pretty significant um i think in the the early parts you know every phase has a different challenge i'd say the early parts was just money you know like mm. how do you like, how can you sustain this thing? So initially we're like, oh, well, we're a tech company. Let's go to Silicon Valley and get investors. And we know all these Muslims in BC and Muslims in, in the Bay Area, like this should be easy. And we went out there and this was 2014, I want to say, maybe 2013. Can't remember, to be honest. I, I think it's 2014. Uh, went out to the Bay Area and like, zero investor like we couldn't get anybody uh, we got a lot of meetings but like no one was really taking us seriously at all um and, and part of the reason is like you know name a successful muslim tech company now we can in 2021 we can name a few like Muslim match um but at that time like there were none so um and not just muslim christian jewish like any kind of you know faith or religious group is really hard to have a model of success and then the following year, we went back and we actually had awesome growth metrics, you know, and we were bootstrapping it all. And I just thought like, wow, you know, now we've really proven ourselves and we, you know, we faced the same hesitation. And a lot mm -hmm. of people, you know, still were like, well, you're honestly, I felt a lot of people were perplexed because they're like, <laughs> yeah, actually you do seem like a good investment, but you're still like a religious company. Right. And so it mm -hmm. was really confounding for a lot of people um and then we almost got this investment from somebody else and but we were looking at the numbers and our revenue it wasn't great it was like i think thirty thousand dollars our first year then ninety thousand dollars then like a hundred eighty thousand dollars so you know a hundred eighty thousand dollars might sound like a lot of money especially if people are li listening to this and like kind of solo entrepreneurs like yeah it's definitely a lot of money um but not when you have a tech company when you have developers and you have a team uh, like I wasn't paying myself yet. Right. So, um, it was, yeah, not, it wasn't a lot of resources. However, you know, it's like basically doubling every year. Right. And so we could see like, okay, this is not easy, but if we can just hang on for another year, maybe we'll get, you know, um, get up to like half a million or in a couple of years, a million. And that's exactly what happened. Right. And then all of a sudden we can start paying ourselves salaries. We can start paying you know, uh, better salaries for people that join the company. You know, I think Abdul Menen, unfortunately, he was in the group of folks that got nothing, right? Like we had, we had the, we used to call it a fellowship, but we still have a fellowship. But in the early days, we didn't pay our fellows anything. It's like, hey, we'll fly you out to Michigan. We'll give you some cool, you know, swag. We're going to give you an amazing experience. We're going to, you know, personally train you, but we don't have money to pay you. And we don't have money to pay ourselves. So, that was a really big challenge early on in launch good, but in every phase of a business, you're going to have different challenges. And then on a personal level, like, Hey, I'm in, you know, I'm in my thirties 
and I have a family and I have rent and cars and all this stuff, like how am I going to pay for all that? Right. Mm -hmm. And and responsible. So it was difficult on a business level and it was really difficult on a personal level at the same time. Um, And on the personal level, I just, I did a bunch of odd jobs, you know, so I was a, a Islamic school consultant one day a week. Um, there was a, a year that I spent one weekend every year or every month going to Dubai to do uh, leadership training and educational leadership training. Um, I have another startup, thankfully, that I was able to to give myself a little bit of salary from, um, you know, sometimes speaking engagement, like just wh- whatever it could be, you know, just to get a little cash in. And I wasn't saving anything, you know, it mm. was just like paying rent. Like that was my goal. Like, can I pay rent? Can I cover my expenses um because i know the future is bright if we can get to it i just need to buy myself some time just having that vision and believing in yourself enough to essentially put it all on the line and do whatever it takes to make it happen that's um i think a lot of people see the end product and they don't realize the pressure and the amount of risk that it actually takes to get there so i uh, yeah. appreciate you sharing that what what i did want to ask is in the early days uh, you mentioned how, uh, you know, Abdulmanan, that first batch of people, you didn't really pay. How did you, I, I mean, you guys still did pretty, really cool work, right? And then you, you guys are all, the founders are all pretty, um, you know, you guys could be in corporate gigs making a lot of money, right? Uh, and so how did you convince people to join your mission and take a pay cut for this cause um was it tough and like what are some best practices for people that may be doing uh you know in that early phase where they're trying to build something that's bigger than themselves and uh, they just can't find talented people yeah it, well, it is tough for sure right um i remember my co-founder Amani, uh who was really intent on recruiting Amani kelawe she's our chief operating officer and um you know, she was coming out of college and she had another job that was paying her, uh, which is also a great organization, ISPU, the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. And it was kind of like, you know, I was telling her, okay, you know, let's try this with me. I, and because early on, I didn't even know who she was. So, uh, or just getting noticed. I'm like, I can, I'm not going to guarantee you an equi- equity yet. Like we're going to talk, you know, like well, let's work together a few months and figure out like if you like it and then we'll give you something but I'm not going to pay you. I'm not going to give you any guaranteed equity up front. Um, and uh, there's no like security in this job. Right? <laughs> Whereas like ISPU was paying her, giving her benefits, you know, uh, there's like a, a path to, uh, you, you know, grow your career within that. Um, and I remember we had negotiated some ISPU where it's like, okay, three days a week, she would go with them. And two days a week, she'd be with us. So it was like, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, ISPU, Tuesday, Thursday, launch good. And then uh, at that time, the director of ISPU is a friend of mine. His name is Farhan Latif. Um, and he's a great mentor for Amani. You know, Farhan was like, this isn't working. It's either all launch good or all ISPU or all launch good. And I was so <laughs> mad at him because I'm like, well, she's definitely going to choose ISPU. Like, why would she choose launch good, right? Um hmm. And uh, alhamdulillah, she chose launch. And I think part of the reason was she was really young. Farhan told her, you know, basically, what do you have to lose? You know, and I think this is really important for um, 
all people in their 20s really to think about is like, what do you have to lose in your 20s? If you take a, a chance, uh, you know, and a risk doing a startup or, or working in a startup and like miss out on a few years of salary, what you're going to invest in yourself through experience is way more valuable in the long run than like a couple of years of earning salary somewhere. Um, and, you know, you'll see that like corporations love to hire people with a few years of experience in a startup, even if it was a failed startup. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a few elements to it, but I think one was a lot of the people we tracked early on were young, like Abdul Menan. A lot of them didn't have a lot to lose. On our end, it required a lot of mentorship, mm. right? They used to call me and uh, it's not so much now, but I, my nickname like early on was Grandpa Chris because I was the only person <laughs> over 30 years old. Like everyone was in their 20s. <laughs> Um, which, you know, it's funny because like being 31, 32 is not really old at all. Um, but, uh, you know, on, the, on my part that requires patience, that requires mentorship. Um, and, uh, you also have to be ready to be told no a lot, you know, mm. founders have to handle rejection well, because it's not just recruiting, like all sorts of people, um, in, you know, uh, p- potential partnerships or, services etc you're going to get told no all the time you're going to lose all the time you know it's kind of like baseball like if you're hitting 300 uh that's a good that's a good average right mm-hmm. so um yeah i think i think that you know there's a a really great mentor of you know founders his name is paul graham you know paul graham i've, I've heard you quote him in a video yeah he's, he's gonna bring that up <laughs> yeah he's he's like one of the founders of y combinator y combinator mm-hmm. is sort of like the harvard or MIT of, of startups, um, accelerator programs. And, you know, he, he, uh, so you're talking about Airbnb and Stripe and so many huge influential companies, Reddit, et cetera. You know, and, and Paul says that in all of his years, his decades of, you know, mentoring startup founders, the most important quality in a successful founder is to be relentlessly resourceful. Mm. So that means, you know, get what you want with what you've got. You know, so you you really want a great team and great talent. You don't have money. Well, you you just got to be resourceful and relentless and and try. And sometimes people are going to say no. Sometimes people will say yes. You know, and you just gotta you gotta do it. Um, I think I'm also really fortunate that I've never uh, I've never gotten a job with a huge salary. Right? Like I was definitely on that path coming out of Michigan as a top graduate of their engineering program and then working at intel but i i quit really early on and did teaching and i did a bunch of you know then i basically went into entrepreneurship from there and um you know i was just interviewing someone for a role within launch good and currently the guy he makes around like four hundred thousand dollars a year and uh in this uh you know i want to be discreet uh, in, in this like, you know, food company that, you know, makes cookies and chocolates and stuff. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's sh- like, it's so hard for him to, you know, conceptualize like how much his salary would have to come down if you were to join launch good. But, you know, part of me wants to I'm like, okay, you know, th- there's, a, I'm not going to apologize for that because there's mm-hmm. a privilege to the work we do. You know, this is work that, inshallah, is not just beneficial for us in this life. It's beneficial for us in the next life. And it's so meaningful. Like, I don't see my work as work. Like, my job is to help Muslims. Like, that literally is my job, is to help Muslims. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I don't, I'm not, you know, uh, you know, working for pennies. Like I'm not, I have a very comfortable life. I have nothing to complain about. Um, and you know, so yeah, like maybe you don't make $400,000, but you're also not spending your life, you know, increasing childhood obesity, right? He's <laughs> in chocolates and all this stuff. So like, you know, what do you want to do with your life? You know? And, and mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to frame it to people is like thinking like, what do you really want out of your life? Um, but it is hard. I think when you get down that path and you, you, you and your family, so it's not just, no one's alone in this, right? If you're married, if you have kids, like you may be certain to cert, used to a certain level of lifestyle um, that you just can't make that jump anymore. Um, and that's unfortunate. You know, it can be real. I, I think the, the flip side or the reverse of that is just always live humbly, always live within your means, live, um, uh, you know, we, what we tend to spend money on is experiences. We don't, you know, like we don't have a BMW or a Mercedes in our driveway. Right. But, um, you know, we might do a trip to Turkey and Lebanon for the summer. Right. So, uh, yeah, Hamza, those, I'm just speaking all over the place, but those are a few thoughts that come to mind. I want to change topics a little bit here and, um, talk about the, the branding and how you guys separated yourselves. Um, th- there's a couple things I want to talk about. One thing that immediately comes to mind, so talking about, so Brian Chesky, uh, co-founder of uh, Airbnb, who, who also went to Y Combinator, he said when he got to Y Combinator, one of the things they told him is like, you need to create a product that 10 people love, right? And I think you mentioned something like this. You quoted Paul Graham um, saying, just focus on creating a product that 100 people love versus a million people like, right? Because right. then they'll go out and, uh, you know, promote your business and all that stuff. So what I thought of that, what Airbnb did at the time when they got that advice, they went to, they're like, where are your customers at? They're like, New York. They're like, why are you guys here in San Francisco or whatever it was? And so they went to New York and they actually offered all their clients to, hey, we'll come take pictures uh, of your places, right? And they, they got to meet the CEOs and, and all that stuff. And so they got to develop those relationships early on. When I'm thinking about LaunchGood, what I think in the early days, similar story is, um, I don't know how Kickstarter, Indiegogo, these other places... Uh, GoFundMe actually manages their accounts. But I remember what was, what I remember from LaunchGood is that there's a campaign manager or I guess project manager that works with you on your campaign and coaches you from start to finish. Right. Right. And so my question is how deliberate of a choice was this? And I'm sure it requires a lot of time investment from your team, right? It's easy to a lot of people focus on just, hey, let's build this infrastructure that scales and everyone can use. But then actually allocating a person, hey, you're in charge of making sure these five projects are mentored from start to finish, right? How, like how deliberate of a decision was that? And was that, um, you know, what are the, just want to understand a little bit of the thought process behind that. And do you guys yeah. still do that, by the way? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of good questions there. And I love that example, Brian, with Airbnb, because uh I, you know, that absolutely was an inspiration for us, right? And as you said, like he himself went into people's apartments, did the photography for them in part because like actually a lot of the photographs those users or hosts were posting themselves like kind of sucked, right? Um, And they they were like, well, if we can model what a good listing is like, other people start to copy it. And we thought the same exact thing for LaunchGo, right? Like if we can model what a good crowdfunding campaign looks like, then other people will start to copy it. 
Um, and alhamdulillah, we did find that true. And uh, in the early days, like literally Amani, my co-founder and myself uh, coached every single campaign on LaunchKid for like the first year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started bringing fellows in like Abdul Menan and then taught them how to become coaches. Um, and we kept building up this like whole coaching program. And at one point, actually, we retired it. And then we brought it back, but in a different format. We call it business development, which is much more, um, I would say, strategic. And uh, But it's kind of, it, you know, more or less, it's still there. Uh, you have to do something that differentiates you, especially early on from your competitors. So, like, that's definitely not something you'd get from, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, et cetera. Um, and yeah, like what's your value proposition? Like why should someone use your company, your platform versus one of the established players out there? Um, and there's always going to be an opportunity when it comes to personalized service. It's not scalable, um, at least early on, but that's okay, right? Because one of those other kind of aphorisms of Paul Graham is, is do things that don't scale. Early on, do things that don't scale. You know, it's, it, and it doesn't last forever. Like, you know, Brian didn't, doesn't still take photographs of people's apartments, right? Um, but you know what they have done for Airbnb? They've set up a whole network of photographers that if you're listing your place on Airbnb, it's really easy to find a photographer in your location that can do the photographs um, for like you know a couple hundred bucks. And this is what they do, right? And so you'll find those opportunities to scale if you've created something of value. And I think that's that's what, if there's one thing I've been good at, is being able to create something of value and everything else follows from that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they fail to get that core concept uh, um, down. It's like they're working on all the, the, the frills and forgetting about the, that core value. And so like, for example, um, even when you talk about branding, Airbnb, actually, if you like the name is horrible, I, to be honest, like <laughs> think about it, like what the heck is Airbnb? Like, you know, like, most people don't know what a bed and breakfast is. They don't know it's spelled BNB. And it's not even a bed and breakfast. Air refers to the air mattresses, like, et cetera, right? Like, it's a silly name. Um, but it doesn't matter. It's like, you know, Google's a silly name. Craigslist is a silly name. Your brand is what people perceive of you, not what you name yourself, right? And that's why, like, Facebook's talking about rebranding and, like, choosing a new name. And it's like, that might fool a few people, but people know who Facebook is. <laughs> you could, you know, put a lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig right (laughs) so um uh your brand is what people see you know perceive of you it's not what your name is it's not how your logo looks it's not the colors like you know and i've seen some beautiful websites been built i've seen like you know really clever names taglines all that stuff but if you just if you're not providing value to people like it's never going to it's never going to survive and thrive for the entrepreneurs out there. Like, how do you make sure that you're focused on value rather than these fancy taglines? Cause I think when people are looking to get into it, they see the nice taglines they see they're on, on launch. Cause they're like built in this life for the next. They're like, Oh man, I could, I could come up with something like that. Right. And so they have these, um, you know, little design pieces and they have these little taglines and they do all the little things, but, they don't actually do the work because I think most people don't realize what the work is, right? If you're in the corporate world, you're doing one little thing. That's your one task. And a lot of times you're just told what to do, right? Unless you're like an executive or something like that. Yeah. So how do you actually 
I mean, like, I guess the question, better question might be, how did you develop that mentality? Where is that coming from? Is that just something you've always had since, uh, I mean, you, you've always been in service, right? So is that just from the service that you, you were doing or is there something that drives that? I'm sure personality plays a role. Like, it, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, we talked in the preview to this um, interview uh, about what your audience is like. You mentioned a lot of people who are kind of like, um, branding themselves and stuff, right? I've actually never been much into that. Um, I, I've always actually been quite worried about it, uh, the self-branding piece. Um, although I see it's very valuable, like found, you know, so, kind of in the zeitgeist, the, the world we live today, CEOs are sometimes the most important marketing tool a company has. Like look at Tesla, like they don't even have a marketing department. <laughs> Elon Musk tweeting stuff, right? So... Um, I get it. Like I understand conceptually it can be very, the brand, personal brand can be very valuable. Um, I've always been wary of it myself. And I, I, I just my personality, I would rather, I, like I don't want to have to convince people that they should use launch good or that we're a good company or invest in us. Like I hated that. Like I hated trying to pitch investors that like why you should invest in launch good. To me is always obvious. And it's like, if if I can't, you know, if I have to like beg you to understand, like I, I, that's, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm about. So I'm just going to go out and prove it to you. Um, hmm. That's always been my personality. I think the, um, the other part of that, you know, I was really focused from the beginning of building a company and we set metrics for ourselves. We always set goals for ourselves. The great thing about data is it, not, it doesn't lie. Hmm. Right. So, um, you know, you can, like I noticed this early on uh, in my entrepreneurship journey here in Detroit, like I'd go to a TEDx Detroit, right? And I'd see certain entrepreneurs speaking on stage and I'm like, man, I, you know, they're so awesome. I wish I could be like them one day. And then like two years later, I go to TEDx Detroit and it's like the same people. And I'm like, you know, and then third year, it's the same people. I'm like, well, you just keep talking. Like, what's your business doing? Like what, have you like, what have you actually done? Like, where's your company? You keep talking about the same idea over and over again, but like, where is it? You know, um, and meanwhile, like, you know, we go from like, so like 30 to 90 to 180 to 500,000 revenue and like the company's growing and, you know, we're raising millions of dollars. And, um, so, you know, I try not to get too caught up in the glamour, um, that comes along the way sometimes with awards. And, you know, we're really grateful actually to have won some awards, but they can definitely be a distraction and they're not actually a, me- a real metric of success. Um, and so I think early on, again, we put those metrics of success, like this is where we want to be in one year and two year and three years and five years, 10 years. So that sort of long-term planning, we do that every single year. And mm-hmm. every year we would compare ourselves like, okay, these are the goals we set for ourselves. How did we do, right? Where do we fall short? Where do we exceed them and why? And what does this mean for next year? So, you know, we took that strategy seriously. Um, your plans never go as you expect, but uh, it's, it, it's essential to plan. Um, you know, and there's some good quotes there and it's like escaping me exactly like, but something like that, like, you know, uh, you know, planning never goes according to plan, but it's essential. Hmm. I want to change, change the pace a little bit here. So if we break down, um, like all the touch points that your, uh, you know, target user or audience may have with your, your brand, right. Launch kid. We go from pre-purchase, in this case, I would say like marketing, uh, social media, 
I think Abdulmanan mentioned actually you guys in the beginning, the early days, you guys actually went to conferences and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so do you guys still do that? Yeah, we oscillate. We oscillate, you know. So early on, we, you know, and that's another thing. Definitely different phases of your business, you need to do different stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So we went to ISNA early on, like in the first couple of years, and that was important. I don't think it actually mattered that much in terms of growing the business, but it was important for us to really believe in ourselves. Because when Mm. you go set up a booth and you have to go talk to everybody like, Hey, Salaam my name's Chris. I'm the founder of LaunchGood. Let me tell you about LaunchGood. Like, and you do that a hundred times a day to people who are walking by your booth. That's actually a very good activity for yourself. Right. And learning Mm. to speak about what, who you are, what you believe in, you know, what you stand for as a company, et cetera. Um, then we stopped going because it was just like, we, we get, you know, for the, the scale we were at, you know, maybe at, at, at ISNA, we'd pick up two or three campaigns, for example. And then early on, that would mean a lot. Like, you know, maybe we only have two or three campaigns a month. So if you can get two or three, mm-hmm. you just doubled it in a month. Right. N- you know, now, for example, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, we have in a month, maybe 200 or 300 campaigns. So picking up an extra, you know, handful is not really going to make a difference. Um, but uh, it does matter for some of the networking. Like I'll, I'll go to these conferences to go meet with, um, you know, some of our VIP partners like Sheikh Omar Suleiman or Imam Khadati, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? Um, not necessarily for the booth aspect. Um, I think my team wants to try a booth again this at Mass Ikna this year in Chicago. And I was like, you know, go for it if you want, but we make them set these things called OKRs. Have you heard of OKRs before? They stand for objectives and key results. Mm. Um, so it's a, it actually is an old, it comes from Intel. Uh, John Doerr, a very famous uh, early employer of Intel, then wrote a book about uh, called Measure What Matters and Google adopted it. And then Google's growing their, their whole system is, you know, based on OKRs. And then because Google grew so big, like it's just, it's very common across all of Silicon Valley. So you set an objective, like uh, our objective is to grow the launch good brand um, at Mass Ikna. And then how do you know you achieve that objective? Because it's actually pretty vague. Um, And so you set key results and those key results are all measurable. So you say, okay, we want to um, interact with 1000, you know, people and we want to get 15 campaigns created. We want to have 12 VIP meetings and we want to do this. And if we, if we check off all of our key results, then we would have, you know, de facto hit our objective. Um, so we use that system within LaunchGood and uh, we just started using it this past year. Actually, it's been really good. Um, although we put our own twist on it, we call it IKR instead of OKR. Where the, can you guess what the I, I stands Intention. for? Yeah, intentions. So what's your intention? <laughs> your intentions are defined, uh, your actions are defined by intentions. So what's your intention? And then set your key results around those. Um, and uh, so we'll see. You know, we, we are going back to a physical event. I do find, generally speaking, though, as a digital company, it's much more valuable for us to spend our time improving the product and thinking about scalable marketing uh, paths than it is to, you know, go to conferences. Uh, but that's, mm-hmm. that's for the scale that we're at now, not necessarily for the scale when we started. I think one thing that you, you brought up that I certainly was not um, thinking of is just using that as a networking 
platform, right? And so I think one thing that we've realized uh, doing this podcast is how tough it is to actually get the word out and how important it is to have the right network. Like uh, we were able, you know, we were able to get you on the podcast because, you know, we're familiar with you. We have that connection. Uh, but a lot of times we don't actually maintain, like in the corporate world, I'm not maintaining relationships with people that are, you know, once we're, we're done, we're done. Right. And so I think how important is it to have that network and, how do you actually maintain your relationships uh, so that when you know when time comes, you're ready to uh, act? Yeah, I'm a huge believer in networking. Um, so, you know, there's that old adage: your net worth, is, your network is your net worth, um, and I love that. Uh, you'll find like you can't do this alone. That's really true for startups, um, for any company. Like you cannot do it alone. And this isn't just about networking with you know, celebrity figures like Imam Omar Suleiman, for example, right? This is also goes to networking with other startup founders so that when you come across a problem, you know what to do or networking with people in your industry so that when you need to hire somebody, now you have some leads. Um, it includes networking like within Detroit. Uh, and I don't know if uh, Abdul Menon told you about it, but, you know, we work in this co-working space, the Green Garage. And, you know, what the founder of the Green Garage, Tom Brennan, is the mentor for or was an early mentor for Amani and uh, another kind of um, early partner in the green garage. His name is Bob wines uh, is one of my mentors who I still you know, go to today, eight years later. Right. Um, and without Tom and without Bob, who, you know, aren't Muslim launch could probably wouldn't exist today. Right. Because there's just mm -hmm. been some huge problems we've come across in launch good. And they're the ones that helped us solve them. So your network is really, really valuable. It's not just because of, you know, driving business, it actually, you know, building a business has tons of its own challenges. Um, and so you need a network to be able to tap into to really, you know, overcome those challenges. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, your network is like a muscle, right? So the more you work it, the stronger it gets, the more you can do with it. Um, and the, if you start to neglect it, then the <laughs> muscle withers and you're not as, you know, strong in, uh, anymore. So like, What's the best way to, you know, kind of maintain your network is you have to stay in touch with people. You have to, you know, and it's hard because we have a lot going on all the time. Um, and that's where events do come in handy where it's like, okay, at least once a year, I'm going to go, you know, see these folks. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't love Facebook actually. Like I kind of, uh, never go to Facebook unless I'm posting something because people follow me. And so if I post something, they donate, which is very generous of them, but as a social media platform, I don't use it. Um, but every morning I get an email from Facebook of like, whose friends are having a birthday today. <laughs> Did you get that email? I, I'm not on Facebook like you. So, and I oh, turn I'm my emails off. <laughs> okay. No, I get an email every morning from Facebook saying, oh, these are the people whose birth birthday it is today. And I'll just send them like a quick WhatsApp message like, hey, happy birthday. Um, hmm. And just simple things like that can make a really big difference. Looking at my own just kind of careers, like I know I should be keeping in touch with these people that have provided value to me and, and mentored me and taught me, but it's like, they're busy. I'm sure I'm busy. And it's just like, it's, it's tough. So, well, um, th this is also, I'd say qu quality over quantity. Uh, there's hmm. a lot of people I, I'm not in touch with anymore that, you know, maybe were really good friends with me in college. Right. Um, 
or played some role when I was an engineer or a teacher in film for films, a really good one. Um, and I still have that loose connection, but is it going to really help me much anymore? And can I really help them much anymore? Probably not. Right. So mm-hmm. your network is also always evolving. Um, so there are people uh, like now, uh, you know, we had a, an issue. Had I, I was facing a business issue the other day and I was fortunate that I got a, I was able to call Tarak Farid. He's the uh, founder of Edible Arrangements because he's one of my mentors. Right. And um, I've gone to him a lot for the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty like amazing mentor to be able to have and tap into. Um, and, uh, so, you know, you have to evolve your network as well to align with, you know, what are your needs? Um, and you know, what are you working on and building at the time? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. You guys recently shifted to a a model where, uh, the service fees are no longer included in the actual, um, you know, uh, checkout and people can choose to pay what they want to pay. I think the like charity water is something that comes to mind when they have, they have like a whole separate admin org and, you know, their money goes directly to the organizations. You know, what, I guess what I'm really curious about is like, did you guys see an impact to the bottom line in a negative way or a positive way? Or is it, has it been the same um, and then what's the feedback been from the people that are, uh, you know, actually making the purchases? Yeah. You know, or, it, it's, um, it was something I dreamt up five years ago. I was like, man, it'd be amazing if we switched to this model. Right. And at that time it was like very scary for my co-founders because they were mm-hmm. thinking like, well, what if no one leaves us a tip? Right. Um, and then GoFundMe went to that model and just giving and a bunch of like mainstream platforms and they've done just fine. So we like, they kind of proved it out for us. So then we built it. Um, and then there's a whole nother s- kind of uh, a slew of problems that we went through where Stripe off board, like our payment process were off point. So we built it for Stripe, then Stripe kicked us off. We mm. built it for WePay, then WePay kicked us off. We built it for another company, Blue, <laughs> Blue Cap kicked us off. So like every time we like got this new payment system ready, our payment provider would like offboard us and we had to like, you know, kind of ignore it and, and just survive. Um, so finally, you know, we have a very stable partnership now with our payment processor. Um, and, uh, we built it and we released it right before Ramadan. Uh, and for the most part, it's about the same. You know, I think before we used to take 5% of every donation. Now it's a tip. They can leave as little as much as they want. The average is a little less than 5%, like around 4.5%. Um, that might sound like not a lot for people listening, but that's actually 10% less overall um, uh, revenue from those fees. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm so glad and I have no regrets on that. Um, you know, one thing we notice is that younger people tend to leave bigger tips, like over 5% on average. It's a lot of our uncles and aunties, and I think you know this, like, they're just like... <laughs> They're very price sensitive, right? Even like the two percent, you know, if they can avoid a one and a half processing, one and a half half percent processing of your credit card, they'll like write a checkout, right? Like (laughs) and stuff. And as young people are like, can I just Apple Pay? Like I, you know, like I don't want to, like I don't even remember how to write a check anymore, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think the future is going to be fine for us, um, and also it's just changed the conversation so much. You know, I do believe it's really important for, you know, good work to be sustainable. 
And this is how we are able to make our work sustainable and invest in it and make it so much better. Um, I don't want to have to make that argument every time. Some people get it. Some people don't. It goes back to that earlier thing. Like I just rather just do my work. I don't want to have to convince people. So the nice thing about tips is now I don't have to convince people like, Oh, you should use launch good. It's okay. There's a 5% fee. And here are the reasons why I can say it's free. You can use launch good. We ask your, the donors as they come in, if they want to leave as a tip, great. If not, no problem. Um, and to each their own, you know, so let's just hmm. focus on the work. Let's focus on getting your funding going, um, and getting your project to life and, you know, forget about the fees. Coming off that sustainability piece is that, you know, for Muslims, we generally give one month of the year, right? And I mean, I think you, you had a tweet about this a little while back too, uh, about like, you know, how you guys for peak for you guys is Ramadan, right? Where yep. uh, things just go crazy. And so, uh, you know, you guys have, you guys have Rasul week, you guys have the, the Hijjah challenge, the Friday givers. Um, how are you guys thinking about uh, making charity and making giving something that happens year round and, um, you know, what are just some of the thought processes and uh, how are you guys coming up with these uh, different campaigns to keep your donors engaged? Because I think for me, at least, I, I like I would love to give more, but it's like, you know, you need someone there. And I think Launcher does a great job of reminding you, hey, this is coming up. You know, this is an opportunity to give again. So, yeah, just how are you thinking through that? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, you, you want to kind of even out the curve, right? So I think most companies like, you know, Oz or charities, this is how their like curve looks like. It's like Ramadan and the rest of the year. And actually, even if you talk to the, the biggest charities today, like Islamic Relief and stuff, um, 20 years ago, all they did was Ramadan fundraising. Like they never, they hardly focused on anything outside of Ramadan, maybe Qurbani when it was came to, uh, you know, the Hijjah, but that was it. Um, and now realize, no, there's opportunities throughout the year and you should, you know, try to create those opportunities, try to have consistent fundraising. There's a good spiritual element to it. You know, where the Prophet said that the best deeds are those done consistently, even if they're few. Um, and, uh, but it has to be authentic. You know, you can't, you can't just like invent things out of, you know, thin air. So like the full weeks, you know, of course is tied to the Prophet and so we think about like, how can we, um, you know, leverage the example of the Prophet and encourage good deeds. And then Giving Tuesday is already a really popular holiday. Uh, among It's not a Muslim holiday. It's like a just general non-prop holiday after Thanksgiving, um, end of year fundraising. So there's kind of all these ebbs and flows. I think what's interesting for us and what we're, we're excited to get into is to create niches, like fundraising niches throughout the year. So we have um, a very important uh, like Global Earth Summit coming up uh, at the beginning of November. And we're partnering with Greenpeace for an initiative called UMA for Earth. Um, and inshallah, we're going to be encouraging some green campaigns, right? And then there are different you know, times of year, like in February, we, we have Black History Month. So we, the whole month, we're encouraging you know, supporting campaigns within the African-American community in America. Um, in the summertime, you know, Malaysia actually has this day of independence. So we have something called Jom Launch Good. And we had this whole thing around crowdfunding campaigns in Malaysia. And like, you're not going to hear about it in America because it doesn't pertain to you. But, mm. you know, that, that exists throughout the world. There's so many different, you know, kind of heritage months or days, special days, um, 
national holidays that we can tie fundraising to. And so, you know, it's kind of like, it's not Ramadan, but it's little pieces of fundraising here and there all the time. Um, and then I think the other thing that's even more important um, is just really being ready for the moment when the moment arrives. So we, mm. we call these like internally, we call them flash campaigns. They're, you know, something usually, unfortunately, something horrible happens and the community is grieving and they're looking for a way to express their condolences, to show solidarity. Um, and frankly, a lot of them at this point even expect, you know, a crowdfunding campaign. So I remember like after the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand a few years ago, immediately some like, you know, major imam started messaging me like, is there a, crowd, is there a launch campaign out for this? Like we can share with people because, you know, what else can we do? You know, we can make our prayers, of course, for, for them. But, you know, there's something very consoling in being able to send a donation to somebody or to a community that's grieving to really show them like you put your money where your mouth is, like you really care for that. Um, and so <laughs> we're always looking for that, you know, um, where are we needed? And being able to really give our most to those communities in that moment of need. Um, and so as an example, like anytime there's something happens in the community, um, like say someone passes away and, um, you know, God forbid, of course, like we wish none of this happened, but it's the reality. It's just the nature of life. So let's say a father dies in a car crash and he's the sole provider of a family and he leaves behind a wife and young children. You know, that community may come to us and say, you know, we need help fundraising for this family, we take that very seriously, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to send an email blast out to our users in that region. We're going to try to connect to influencers and see, you know, pro bono, would they be willing to, to support this? We'll reach out to some of our top donors in a community and we say, Hey, this, you know, really urgent campaign came in and we thought you might be interested in support it. And, you know, because of those type of efforts, alhamdulillah, we're able to drive a lot of donations to, very valuable and important campaigns. Like an example of that is uh, brother Omari Gray. You know, he recently um, a year, about a year and a half ago, he almost, this amazing brother in Virginia. Did you get to see, you know about him or you, did you see that video? No, I haven't seen You haven't heard about no, this at all? No. Really? So this is, yeah, I got to check it out after. This is the biggest launch good campaign on it for an individual in our history. Um hmm. So it was during Black History Month last year, right after the George Floyd uh, murder. And he's an amazing brother. He's a convert. He's deeply beloved in the Virginia community. Um, he decided to kind of leave the corporate rat race and start an organic far a halal organic farm um, in the rural area of Virginia. And he was doing a, an early morning milk delivery run. And you know these Oh farm. yeah, I remember this. Right? You know this, right? And he yeah. got an accident. He he had on collision with a semi truck, and you know he was on life support. The doctor said, you know, he's not going to make it. Um, he had some enormous. I think eleven children. I mean, a, a huge family. I had nine or eleven children. A huge family, and so the community created a launch good. It ended up raising over a million dollars. Mashallah. Oh, and, um, you know, and then it's also a miracle because they took him off life support and he lived the whole night, the whole night without any life support. Mm. He survived. And I, I don't know if you've had the experience of, 
you know, taking someone off life support. Uh, we had to do it with my father-in-law, Allah Yerhamu. You know, within a second, you know, the, the body stopped functioning, the heart stopped, like within a second, you know, it was immediate. Mm. And to think that someone would live the whole night off life support is just a miracle, subhanAllah. Um, and so they put him back on life support. You know, he's, they said he never walk again, subhanAllah. Now he, he's able to stand and he's taking steps like he's walking again. So we made this whole documentary. It's, a, it's really incredible. Um, and uh, I encourage people to walk it, watch it. It's only like seven minutes. But, um, you know, that's the example of like what I feel our job is in the community. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, so that that I think, yeah, there's all those nice holidays and opportunities to create fundraising. But ultimately, I think the most important thing for LaunchGood is to be there for the community in its in whatever moment of needs there are. Mm. I think you mentioned just a bunch of stuff there that we could dive into. Um, I, I mean, how you actually are able to find the, at the global scale scale you have this giant startup that you are now operating in Malaysia, US, was it 150 countries? Yeah. Right? And so you're also creating these movements in these niche environments and I think there's there's a lot to dive in there. I know we don't have too much time. I want to be mindful of your time. One thing I did want to make sure I ask cuz this is one of the main things that me and Abdullah discussed. I think you'd be very disappointed I didn't ask was when LaunchGood was started uh, he was telling me that the vision was more of like a Kickstarter where, uh, yes, you did have your charity, but it was more for funding creative ideas. Now, going to the website now, there is still that creative section. I see it, but it's like primarily charity 1%. work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is is that a shift that happened um, by your doing or is that just what ended up happening and you guys just ran with it? and uh, I guess I think there's a lot of lessons here in in how you guys approach this for people that are actually trying to serve their audience as well. So, yeah, you can so that a little bit. it's uh, and every startup has to go through, it. you know, they might call it pivot or something else, but you have to adjust your vision and your business model according to what actually people want. You know, so if we go to Airbnb, like what was their initial vision was people could get air mattresses and host people in their apartments when there are conferences and events in their city, right? Mm -hmm. Which is totally different than Airbnb's <laughs> model today, right? Like, I'm not like, oh, I want to go to ISNA in uh, Houston, <laughs> go on Airbnb and find an air mattress in like someone's, you know, guest bedroom. Like, I'm not, that's not how you use it. You're like, let me go to Airbnb and rent an apartment for the weekend, right? So, um uh, you, you definitely have to just, I think early on, we really were invested in that vision of a creative platform, more like Kickstarter, because I came from the film industry. Um, you know, Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah has this article that really impacted me at the time called um, uh, uh, Islam and the Cultural Imperative. And just highlighting how important it is that Muslims become leaders within culture creation Right, the movies we in the 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 TV shows we watch, the music that we listen to, you know, the 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 things that really kind of define culture. Muslims should be at the lead of, not consuming what others without our values are generating. Um, and so I was a big believer in that. But you know, early on, and people were like, "Oh, can I put a charity campaign?" I was like, "Yeah, go ahead. You know, add a charity campaign." And like, they do really well. And the creative stuff mm -hmm. are like pulling teeth. 
And after a while, we realized like, you know, this is, um, this is what our community wants from us, you know, and we have to adjust our vision accordingly. Now, because we've been able to build ourselves up, we're able to still achieve that creative vision, you know, so um, it's just maybe not as much we, as we plan to initially. But as an example, we work with uh, an amazing friend and entrepreneur, Mohammed Faris, a productive Muslim. He created something called the Baraka Journal earlier this year. It's, it's, it's actually right over there. Um, it's incredible. And he had a campaign. He was hoping to raise, I think, $30,000 this February. And he raised hundred over $100,000 through Launch Good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got him a marketing package. We sent the newsletter out for him. And like, we were able to generate ourselves about $50,000 from our donors. Um, so, you know, alhamdulillah, I think because we went with what the community wants from us, we're still able to achieve, uh, what mm. that, that initial vision, but you know, any company is going to have to go through this, that like you might have, you know, your initial vision and it builds and it builds and builds. I like to give the example of Facebook, like early on, I think Mark Zuckerberg had an interview with like MSNBC or somebody. And, you know, they're asking about, you know, what's, what is Facebook and what's your vision for Facebook? And he's like, you know, my vision is that every college campus in America is on Facebook, you know, and it's funny. Like at the time it seemed very ambitious Mm. because he was just in the Ivy league schools, you know, but like, it's really funny in hindsight because Facebook is like way bigger than, you know, a few million college students, you know, it's like billions of people all around the world. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, founders have to give themselves some, you know, uh, flexibility um, or forgiveness that, you know, maybe you're, you don't have your vision all flushed out or, or right from the start, you can build your vision. And the more success you have, the more confidence it gives you. Uh, in building that vision. You know, I remember early on uh, when I went to the Silicon Valley, um, you know, Muslims, I met with, he's a really great one. His name is uh, Osama Badir. And he's an investor in Indiegogo and PayPal. And he's created his own startups, very successful, mashallah. And he met, he's nice enough to meet with me. And like right away, he starts off, he's like, so is this a billion dollar idea? And I'm like, uh, like I'm, I'm stuttering, right? He's like, Chris, you know, I know three people today already that are certain they have a billion dollar idea. And if you don't believe in yourself, I can't believe in it for you. But I couldn't mm. believe in it because I was like, hey, we'd raise a hundred thousand dollars. And you're asking me, is this a billion dollar idea? Like it just the the gap seems so far. Now mm. I, I think, you know, if I was to ask you at least, do you think Launch Good will fundraise a billion dollars worth of uh campaigns? Do you, what do you think, Ahmed? Easy, of course. Easy. Like we're at, yeah. we're at a quarter billion, like two two more years probably, inshallah, right? <laughs> inshallah. So I, I don't mean, yeah, inshallah, I really mean that because you never know what's going to happen. But the point is, um, the more success you have, the more confidence it gives you in what you're doing. And then from there, you can build a more confident vision of what the company could become. What you kind of highlighted there is that understanding the actual need of your user trumps your vision and, and what you wanted to do. And by focusing yeah. on your user, you will have that opportunity to, you know, dabble in what you wanted to do. But you need to focus with making those hundred people love your product and creating that um, service for that. them. I love that. Yeah. So last thing, and I think this is a really good thing to end on. Um, and then, of course, I do want to give you a little bit of time to make sure uh, people know where to find LaunchGood and find you. But uh, last question I had for you, it's clear, like it's evident that 
you are very well versed in startups, um, performance management. Like, you know, just talking to you, it's clear that you've studied this stuff extensively, right? You have the case studies offhand, right? So, yeah. how important is it as a leader, as someone who's steering the ship, to have that education, the continuous learning piece for themselves? Uh, and what are some best practices that you have for making sure that you are that continuous learner? You know, I, I, it's a good question. I'd say generally it's it's very important. It, it, there's going to be phases for it. So early on, I was consuming a lot. You also kind of have a lot of time early on because your business is small and like it's just barely growing. Like I said, maybe we have two or three campaigns a month. Um, so, you know, early on, uh, Y Combinator had a release online, this program they did in Stanford called How to Start a Startup is right as we were launching the company. So Amani, Omar, Omar is my other, I mean, we need to talk about, but Omar Hamid is our third co-founder. So Amani, Omar and I would all sit down and watch these lectures together as they were coming out. Um, that was incredibly powerful. And that's where we got, we learned about Airbnb and their, how they grew. And we learned about Paul Graham and all that stuff. Right. Um, and then, you know, you start going down rabbit holes. You learn who Paul Graham is. Then you find his website. You start reading all his essays. And that takes you to, I don't know, somebody else. And you start reading books, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you listen to podcasts like How I Built This. You probably know that one with Guy Raz. Like I used to listen to that religiously. You know, I don't really consume that stuff like I used to anymore, mm -hmm. right? Because now I'm actually building it, right? And if I have a real question, a lot of times I go to a, a in-person mentor. But early on, I'd say a lot of the problems and challenges you face as a startup are, are you know, mil a million people have been there before. They're very common in the challenge, you know, like kind of the type of challenges they are. And so all those podcasts, reading, et cetera, are very, very valuable and people should consume them. As you get bigger, your challenges become very unique, like getting paid off by a payment processor because you're a Muslim platform and it's just pure discrimination. Like, how do you deal with that problem? Do you sue them? Mm -hmm. You'd cry, go create a Twitter storm. You, you risk, uh, souring potential future relationships with banks because they can see that you're, you complained about Stripe and now they don't, they don't want to work with you. Like, you know, that's complex, right? Um, no one's actually probably been in the exact situation that we're in. And now you have to navigate it, you know, in a totally different way that you can't just go listen to some podcast for it. Um, so mm -hmm. I'd say it, it evolves. It's really early, early on, it's really important. But um, that mindset of constantly learning is always going to be there. It's just how you learn is going to, you know, shift, I think, from the vast amount of resources available on the internet to, you know, more in-person relationships. Hmm. So the more you're doing, the more likely it is you're going to need personalized advice. And that can only come from mentors and not uh, generic books. Yeah. And... and trial and error, frankly, right? Like mm. there's no, that's the tough part about when you get bigger is like, there's no right answer or clearly right answer. There might be a wrong answer, but you probably won't know until you actually like <laughs> attempt it. And then, you know, you'll find out whether it's like, it, you know, backfired or not. And I think that's also important for every entrepreneur is, you know, accept failure, be ready, be ready for failure. And every failure is a success as long as you learn from it. Well, That's a great way to end it. Uh, Chris, where can people find uh, LaunchGood? And if they want to start a campaign, uh, you know, where do they go? I know you mentioned LaunchGood.com. And then if they want to follow you and, and see, uh, follow the journey a little bit more of the founder, 
Uh, do you do you share that stuff on social media or or do you want? Yeah, to, you know, I, I have some blog posts written up about it, so people can find our blog at launchgood.com/blog. Um, Launchgood everywhere, right? So at Launchgood for Twitter, at Launchgood for Instagram, at Launchgood Facebook, whatever, right? So we're at Launchgood everywhere. Um, and then me personally, I'm on Twitter as AR Blavelt. So AR is for Abdurrahman, my Muslim nickname. Uh, Blavelt, um, you know, people can Google it. They can figure out how to spell it. Uh, that's where I'm most active. And yeah, we would, you know, the thing that we really, really love to help people, we love, it's our purpose, our, our, our mission is just to help you help yourself, right? So if you have a fundraising campaign you want to do, there's someone in your community you want to help, um, uh, you know, create a water well for a loved one in memory, et cetera, just reach out to me. I'll connect you to my team and we'll get that thing funded, inshallah. Chris, for coming on. Thank you for being so gracious with your time. One of the really cool features on the LaunchGood website is they have a real-time overall tracker. So as I'm recording this, LaunchGood has had over 940.6 thousand donors, 35.9 thousand campaigns, and $271.3 million funded across 150 countries. I personally find this super inspiring because there's no shortage of people that are creating businesses so that they can cash out and make a lot of money. But what LaunchGood and the team behind LaunchGood has done is create a platform where a community can come together to support those in need and every so often fund super cool ideas. Now, as always, I have my key takeaways from this episode. But before we get into that, I want to share a clip with you from our episode with Omar Elias on the nonprofit Bani. When we started doing interviews um, on like TV and stuff, we made sure it was both. So we did an interview in like, it was like one in like it was like a smaller one it was like care or something that was in english and then we did one with in urdu completely and this is some like random network in like Pakistan. and the, the goal of that again was to relate to both audiences like, that we're not we're present right mm-hmm. and it's the same thing when a politician runs and like they're disconnected from their community and the community knows that they're gonna eventually reject it, right the same thing if a non-profit is rejected by the community they're trying to help they can't do it right? mm-hmm. if, if the community i'm like hey like you need water he's like nah get out of my face I can't force water. Like, I can't take a hose and, like, to drink my water. <laughs> it's not going to work. He's going to be like, bro, like, I don't want you here. I can't do it here. I'm, like, miles apart. If you enjoyed this discussion with Chris, I am sure you will also enjoy the episode with Omar. Check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. It is episode number nine. Now, here are my key takeaways. Number one, this is something I like to call the founder nuance. If you're a founder, when it comes to external forces, people on the outside looking in, people that really have no involvement in your business and don't really care for you or your business, you have to not take that feedback. You have to be stubborn with that vision and stick to your plan. However, when it comes to your actual customers, you have to be willing to pivot over and over again. Refine your vision over and over again until you get to what your customers actually want and need from you. And number two, be relentlessly resourceful. You have to be able to get what you want with what you've got. And that is all for this episode. If you enjoyed this discussion, please consider leaving a review and sharing with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.